Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, politicians in Washington managed, just about, to avoid plunging the United States off the famous fiscal cliff, which would have imposed deep and automatic cuts in spending and tax rises. Instead, President Obama and Congress agreed a limited package of tax rises, with discussion about spending cuts deferred for a little while. Markets rallied briefly. But is this a solution or just a respite? Joining me on the line from Washington is Richard McGregor, our bureau chief there, and in the studios, Martin Sanbu, our economics commentator. Richard, uh, can I start with you? There was a lot of relief when it was passed, but now the realisation seems to be dawning that it all could start again in a couple of months in a slightly different guise of arguing about the debt ceiling. Is, is that a fair summary? Well, certainly at the moment, all the indications are that this is, as you say, a respite, not permanent relief. Um, all the indications given by Republicans is that they intend to fight, you know, from trench to trench. There's three more occasions for big battles. There's the debt ceiling, which is the biggest one, which runs out sometime towards the end of February. We don't know exactly when. There's the horribly named sequester, which is the automatic uh, cuts you were talking about. That comes up at uh, March 1. And then we have to have another fight over the budget on March 27 when the funding for the government runs out. And a lot of Republicans took a lot of criticism for agreeing to a tax hike. And I think they feel they need to make amends on that issue with their base and they intend to fight. Of course, President Obama says he won't fight, but uh, I, I really don't see how he can manage to avoid it. So just talking us through slightly more detail, the debt ceiling is essentially uh, that America, when it hits a certain level of national debt, has to get congressional approval to go above it and the Republicans will withhold that unless they get these spending cuts. I mean, you, you were suggesting there that Obama will have to agree to spending cuts if he's going to get the rise in the debt ceiling. Is that your reading of it? Yeah, the debt ceiling is basically for the U.S. to borrow money for programs which Congress has already approved. In other words, money already spent. It's not for future spending. That's the paradoxical part of it. In 2011, the last time the debt ceiling issue came up, you'll remember the Republicans held the administration's feet to the fire then, and it was only solved, as all these confrontations are, at one minute to midnight with the administration agreeing to cuts. Now, Mr. Obama can get on his high horse and say that, you know, I won't negotiate over the full faith and credit of the U.S. once again. Well, that's all well, very well and good, but Congress must approve it, and they want something uh, in return. Now, we can deride it as hostage-taking, which, you know, in a way it is, or as Mitch McConnell called it, uh, hostages for ransom, but I don't see how Mr. Obama can have just avoid the issue. And how are Mr. Obama's supporters feeling right now? I mean, uh, he seems to be getting flack from both directions, from liberals who accuse him of caving too easily uh, and, and from uh, conservatives who accuse him of being arrogant and distant and unwilling to compromise. Well, he's had a bit of flack from the, his liberal wing, but it'll be nothing like uh, the kind of flack he'll get if he does what many, uh, you know, right-thinking people in, um, who write editorials and newspapers and the like think he should do, which is really take on 
a grand bargain and really put uh, his own side's feet to the fire on entitlements, on health spending, on pensions and the like. I think most of the flack has come at Republicans for the obvious reason that they had to give ground in this negotiation, whereas the spending part of the equation was not really touched. Now, Martin, what are the economic consequences of what they've agreed? Because I started by saying, oh, well, they've avoided the fiscal Mm. cliff. But in fact, arguably, they've slithered a bit of the way down. They have actually raised taxes. And as we're hearing, they're probably going to cut spending. So are we getting to the fiscal cliff by other means? I think there's a lot of truth to that. In a sense, the economics is quite a bit clearer than the politics. The politics is confused because, on the one hand, everyone wants to be seen as tough on the deficit. On the other hand, nobody wants to be responsible for cutting the deficit so much you throw the economy back into a recession. So the politics was always going to be confused. What policy do people really want? Economically, as I said, I think it's quite a bit clearer. The U.S. has a medium to long-term problem with public finances, like most countries. Tax reform will be needed, entitled reform will be needed. In the short run, the last thing the U.S. needs is a steep fiscal tightening. And that's exactly what was on the cards. Right? We were talking about a $600 billion reduction in the deficit per year. That's about 4% of GDP. That would have caused a new recession. We didn't get that, so didn't slide all the way down the fiscal cliff. But as you said, they did slide some of the way down. It's between 150 and 200 billion a year, maybe, of uh, of tax rises. Now, what you've heard most about are the income tax rises on the high income people above 400,000. You hear much less about the uh, payroll tax increase. Pretty much everyone who pays payroll taxes—that's three quarters of Americans—will face a two percentage point tax rise as of now. What's the difference between a payroll tax and the income tax? Well, the payroll tax, first of all, is supposed to go into funding your social security benefits when you retire. It's like national insurance in the UK. Uh, Secondly, it's only paid on the real middle class, what I call the real middle class, people on five-digit incomes, or up to, I think it's 112,000. So the vast majority of Americans, people on six figures or uh, above 100 and a bit, thousand a year don't pay the payroll tax so while the whole debate was about not imposing an income tax rise on the middle class they actually did it surreptitiously by letting the payroll tax increase and that's going to be bad for the economy because these are people who spend money so uh, if you combine that with the possibility of, of quite deep spending cuts Uh, Are we, in fact, going to have this, I don't know what the economist jargon is, is pro-cyclical cut in in spending and slowing of the economy at a time when the economy can ill afford it? I think that's right. I mean, the economy is growing, so I don't know if it's entirely pro-cyclical, but we've had slow growth for the last two years, right? In 2010, there was a pickup and then it slowed down. And I think a large part of that is because people have seen that the politicians aren't really stimulating the economy. With these tax rises you had now, I think we'll have another quarter of slower growth than we could have had. And come March, if there are more spending cuts, you know, in the short run, Keynesian economics works. You cut spending, you slow down the economy. Of course, you say in the short run. I mean, to put the the devil's advocate case, I mean, would there ever be a good time to start getting serious about the deficit? You know, if the economy were growing faster, people would say, don't choke off the recovery. Doesn't America have to get serious at some point, and why not now? Yeah, no, you're quite right about it. And, of course, it's easy for editorialists and academics and so on to to point out what the ideal policy would be. But it's still useful to think about the ideal policy. It is to act now to pass reforms that come into effect in the future rather than immediately. Richard, to get back to the politics of this, I mean, it seems like President Obama 
will have no honeymoon at all from winning re-election. A lot of people, his natural supporters, must have hoped that, OK, he'd be freed from the struggle of having to campaign, uh, he would have a fresh mandate, things could really get rolling. But he's not even made his second inaugural speech yet, and he's down in, in the Washington mud. No, well, there's no honeymoons in today's partisan US politics. Uh, and in many respects, the campaign continues because... Mr. Obama, in trying to sort of put pressure on the Republicans, is using the technique that he used last year in pushing through the temporary payroll tax extension, and that is basically to get out on the road, paint his Republican rivals as radicals, and leverage public opinion in his favor in doing so. And that's a tactic that's uh, worked very well from him in the past. I mean, everybody complains that you know Mr. Obama's great at campaigning and terrible at governing, I'm afraid it's become one and the same thing at the moment, uh, and so we can expect to see him out on the road once again. What about the people who have to do the actual nuts and bolts stuff? There was stories this week that Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, may step down really quite soon. Yes, well, Tim Geithner was favoured by Mr Obama in the latest bout of talks with the Republicans. Initially, Joe Biden took over because he has a good rapport with them. Jack Lew, his chief of staff, former head of the budget office, future uh, treasury secretary by most accounts, knows his stuff backwards, but is considered highly partisan by the Republicans and they don't like him. So the loss of Geithner, who is, has the ability to negotiate and knows the technical issues, um, will be felt by the administration. And it will be interesting to see whether he, if he throws Jack Lew uh, into the forefront to take over, because that may not help his case. What about the state of the Republican Party? We talked a fair amount about the president, but they've been you know, ripping themselves apart over this, and they've conceded a principle that they held on to for 20 years, no tax rises. They did ultimately accept tax rises. Yeah, they conceded the principle only because they had no choice. They had a gun to their head. And, and I think, quite to be fair, they basically had to negotiate to limit the tax rises. Uh, and in some respects, they didn't too, do too badly at that. Um, you know, Mr. Obama talks about protecting the middle class, but, you know, is, a, is anybody earning up to $450,000 in a middle class? Um, I don't think so. Uh, but the Republicans certainly uh, have been all over the shop and split in multiple fashions. Uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, the dealmaker, took the lead when John Boehner, the Speaker, couldn't. And then when the, the Senate bill came back to the uh, Republican uh, House caucus, um, you know, Mr. Boehner uh, said he'd support it. Paul Ryan said he'd support it. But uh, Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy, the other two members of the leadership team, voted against it. So that was really, really messy. And there's long been tension between Boehner and his number two, Cantor. And this really seems to set it in stone. And for Mr. Boehner, who considers himself a dealmaker, he's under pressure now not to give in to Mr. Obama. So that ups the stakes even more, I think, for the debt ceiling fight. OK, and uh, last question on the on the politics and how it's all going to play out. I mean, we remember last time they had a debt ceiling fight that was linked quite closely to the subsequent downgrade in America's credit by the credit rating agencies. Is it possible that we could have a fight that is as bloody and as damaging as last time? Is it looking that way? I think it's quite possible. Um, you know, maybe um, the sun will break through the clouds here in D.C., but uh, the way everybody's positioned themselves, that, that doesn't seem to be on the cards. Um, you know, I expect it will be solved. It always seems to be in one way or another, even if just for a few months. But 
I think the fight could be just as damaging this time. So, Martin, if I can end the discussion with you, I mean, we've done this as a very much inside America, the American economy, but of course the American economy is the core of the world economy still. How bad is this for the rest of the world? Well, if it's going to be, uh, like Richard suggests, it may, namely a really bad fight and a lot of uncertainty and maybe even things going wrong and uh, a technical default on U.S. debt, it will be devastating. Over the last year... Devastating? That's a big word. I think so. The U.S. has got away last year with saying, well, really, the Eurozone is the drag on, on the world economy. Well, this might be the year, unless the people in Washington shape up, that it's the U.S.'s fault that the world doesn't grow faster. Okay, Martin Sandby, uh, with that cheerful thought, we'll end the discussion. Thanks very much. And thanks also to Richard McGregor in Washington. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.